0: Today we are actually in the second week of our series called Dead Man Walking, and it's kind of a a weird title for a series. Um, The phrase dead man walking is actually a phrase that's used to describe the walk that a person who has committed a capital offense does as they go from their cell to the execution chamber. So this is a weird phrase to be calling out. Um, It's used because the death of that person is so real, it's so eminent, it's, it's so certain that as they walk forward and they take their steps to the execution chamber, their death is so certain. It hasn't happened yet, but it's certain. And in the same way, Dead Man Walking best describes the incarnate life and ministry of Jesus and his death on the cross. It was so certain, it was so real, that it loomed over everything that he did. Every miracle that he performed, every teaching that he engaged in, every act of kindness and compassion that he engaged in uh, took place under the shadow of the cross. Every step he took, took him one step closer to Jerusalem, one step closer to his execution, one step closer to the cross. But Jesus' death wasn't a result of any criminal activity that he engaged in. He was was perfect. There was no sin. His death is actually a result of our capital offense. It's actually a, a result of our own sin. He walked this journey in order to bear the judgment for our sin. He was a dead man walking by choice. And every step that he took was taken out of love for you and for me. So for the six weeks leading up to Easter, during the Lenten season, we're actually going to be looking at and retracing the steps of Jesus' journey to the cross. From his baptism, which we talked about last week, to his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, we're going to be looking at six kind of defining moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, I recognize that the people in this room are not all followers of Jesus, that we're all not yet followers of Jesus, Uh, But if you are a follower of Jesus, you also are a dead man walking or a dead woman walking. And it's kind of weird to think about that, but the Bible tells us that our old self is dead, that our old self is gone, and that we have been raised to life as a new person in Christ. And so this Lenten season is actually a great time to think about how we can continue to die to that old self. And come alive to the new self that we have in Christ Jesus. The Bible actually calls this the sanctified life. And maybe you've heard that fancy churchy term before, sanctified. It really is just talking about that process of as we walk through life, our old self, our dead self continues to die. And the new self that we have in Christ, the new life we have in Christ, becomes more and more life, takes over more and more parts of our lives. And so Lent is actually the the coming season towards Easter. Lent is actually a great time to think about the habits and behaviors that we exhibit in our lives or the attitudes that we have in our lives that we may actually need to lay down because they're a part of that dead self. But it also gives us time to also think about what are the habits and the behaviors and attitudes that we may need to pick up and incorporate into our lives. So that that new life, that new self, can become more and more apparent. Now as I mentioned before, last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus. This baptism marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was the moment where he turned from all the other things of life and he started heading towards the cross. He started heading towards the kingdom and it coming to earth. But right there from the very beginning, before any miracle happened, before he did any incredible teaching, before any acts of kindness or compassion happened, like God speaks this amazing blessing on Jesus. Before he proved himself in any way, God allows his voice to come down from heaven and to say, this is my son who I love. In him, I am well pleased. And we talked about last week how this is the same blessing that any follower of Jesus receives. That before we've like proved our worth and our value and how great we are at ministry and good we are at teaching or how faithful we can be. God turns to us and he says, you're my child. I love you. I am pleased with you. And nothing you do could ever, ever change that. Now... The interesting thing is, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but typically when there's some sort of spiritual awakening or spiritual breakthrough that happens, maybe it's that you go to a retreat and God becomes real and alive and you experience him in this incredible way. Or maybe it is the result of your actual baptism that takes place. Or maybe you read this incredible book that gives you um, insight to something. Or you hear a message that just makes God become so real. Anytime you have one of those powerful experiences, this awakening spiritual revelation, anytime that happens, it seems like immediately there, there is this counterattack and you fall into temptation. You do something really stupid. Or someone around you does something really stupid. Or, or your dog dies. Or like whatever happens. And all of a sudden it feels like, wait, there was all this good stuff. We were flying high. Why am I now crashing and burning? Why is this happening? Now, I want to make sure you know that that's not just a coincidence. That's because there's an actual battle that is going on in our world. And as we read the story of the temptation of Jesus, we read this account of the temptation of Jesus. We get this upfront view to see what happens to Jesus so that we can better understand what is happening to ourselves, what's happening to us. So we're going to read this account together. It's from the book of Matthew in chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand up on the high point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And all this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This passage that we read begins with this word then. And if you are engaging in reading scripture, if you're starting to dive into that, this is one of those words that I want to alert you to. Whenever you read scripture and you hear the word then, it often can be translated also as therefore. So all of this stuff, therefore, all of this stuff right? So Jesus gets baptized. The voice of God affirms him and says, this is my son. I love him. I am well pleased. Therefore, the spirit led him into the wilderness. It's this clue that you need to pay attention. These stories aren't solo acts. They are connected. The baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus are inextricably connected. One inevitably leads to the other. In Mark's account of this story, of these two stories, he actually inserts the word immediately to drive the point home. After his baptism, Jesus immediately was led out to the desert. After the spirit fell on Jesus at his baptism, also immediately that spirit led him out into the desert. The juxtaposition of these stories is reminding us that there is a spiritual battle That when there's a spiritual baptism, then there's a spiritual battle. First, there's a voice from heaven, and then there's a voice from hell. First, there's comfort. You're my child. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. And then there's conflict. First, there is strength, and then there is weakness. First, there is water, and then there is desert. First, there's spiritual refreshment, and then there is spiritual dryness. The two of these things, they go together. Now, that catches a lot of us by surprise. By surprise. Because we assume that the closer we are to God, the more we are being led by the Spirit, the more we have his peace and love influencing our lives. We think that the less conflict there's actually going to be, that life should be easier. And when we experience conflict and difficulties and temptations, we automatically think, well, it must be because I've done something wrong. I must have messed up somewhere. It must be because I'm not being led by the Holy Spirit. It must be because I've moved away from God. But actually, the opposite is often true. The more that God's spirit and God's power and his strength and his peace are poured out into our lives, the more conflict and temptation, and struggles there will be. To put it another way, if your life is actually void of conflict, that it's totally comfortable and everything is always fine, it may be because you're not attempting great things for God. And we say this not just because like followers of God are masochists and we like, run into conflict and trouble and strife. That's not what we're called to do. That's not it at all. The reason this happens is because anywhere in the world where you see the kingdom of God advancing, anywhere in the world where you see love advancing or you see peace advancing or you see justice and grace advancing, there's another, there's another kingdom at work also that doesn't want to see that happen. You'll see a kingdom of hate and fear and pride at work as well. Here's the spiritual principle. Whenever there is a spiritual advance or a kingdom advance, you can expect that there's also going to be a spiritual battle. Whenever there's a manifestation of comfort and peace and love, you will expect that there will also be stress and conflict and temptation. Wherever there's a voice from heaven, there will also be a voice from hell. Now look at Jesus, like you can, you can see this, right? Jesus is the person who was like utterly led by the Spirit, right? He was connected to God, he, he was God, he was completely pleasing to God. And where did it lead him? It led him into the desert. It led him ultimately to a cross. Now, before you start thinking that the Spirit led him there, means that the Spirit caused this suffering. I want to correct that for just a second. This battle is not the Spirit's doing. That the Spirit didn't do this. We have to understand the Spirit didn't create this battle, the battle already existed. The enemy waged this war. And when it says that the Spirit leads us, it's kind of like the Spirit is leading us the way a commander leads us into battle. The battle's already happening, the fight is inevitable, and the military leader says, follow me and I will lead you to victory. Now, I know that some of you who are maybe exploring what it might look like to follow Jesus, you're probably thinking in your head, Beth, you are really not making a very convincing argument to follow Jesus, (laughs) this sounds awful, (laughs) right? Like, this sounds really, really crappy. I'd rather just be um, comfortable and uh, not have a lot of conflict in my life and uh, cruise through this thing, right? Um, So I totally get that. But I want you to understand that uh, it's not my job to try to convince you to follow Jesus. (laughs) It's actually the Holy Spirit's job, and it's a good thing because he's much better at it than I am. But the second thing I want you to understand is that anyone anyone who tries to tell you that if you do something, you get married, you lose weight, you have children, you take a different job, you buy this house, if you do these things, your life will be easier. Your conflicts will end. They're lying. Just making sure everybody knows. They're lying. And if anyone tries to convince you to follow Jesus because your life will get easier and all your problems will go away, they are asking you to follow a fake Jesus. And they're lying. That's not the real Jesus. Too often we want to discount the real spiritual battle that's taking place in our world. We want to discount the fact that there is a real spiritual enemy. We like to cling to the idea that if we're good, then, then life will go well. <laughs> but there is an actual enemy who is evil, and if there is actually a devil and demonic forces that follow him, it stands to reason that anywhere that goodness and godliness show up, they would launch an attack in that place. So let's talk for a second about this enemy, the devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him. Sometimes we, I I think that oftentimes we have a lot of misunderstandings about the devil. A lot of misunderstandings, a lot of messed up thinking about who Satan is. And we have to address first the images that we have in our head when we talk about Satan, when we talk about the devil. So I wanted to show you some of them. In the very early, early church, um, uh, in the first thousand years of the church, uh, there was this Romanesque style of, uh, of painting, which is often done in mosaic tiles and things like that. And this is how Satan was often uh, depicted. This is the three temptations of Christ, right? And so you have um, Satan tempting Jesus three different times in three different ways. And, and in this, the devil is oftentimes depicted as this like uh, reptilian sort of figure with wings, dark skin, and horns. He's depicted in these ways. And I've never seen a creature anything like that before. But later on, it shifted. Our thinking shifted about what the devil looked like. In the early Renaissance period, with the rise of visual realism, the shift took place to make the devil look more real. And so um, churches uh, did lots of paintings of what, and mosaics and things like that of what the devil looked like. So between 1200 and 1500, the devil is no longer this scaly reptilian figure, but it's actually depicted more real. It's depicted like a monk still horns and if you check out there's like taloned feet to let you know that this this creature is the devil but there's this there's this shift happening there's this understanding that evil that's presented in the bible is actually more like a masked reality it's not as it appears evil oftentimes appears good it's not easy to spot like oh you're a you're a scaly creature you're evil no it's it's more hidden it's more covert It can even appear in a form of good. It can look like a loyal, faithful monk. But then later, in the late Renaissance and the early modern period, there's another shift again. And the devil is actually depicted like an angel. This beautiful creature of light. Even more tempting. Even more willing to kind of say, oh, they can't be that bad. Fully angelic. No horns, no scales. And then in modern times, we have yet another shift about how the devil is depicted. Oftentimes, as a fiery red beast with with horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail, comes up in cartoons all the time. Now, interestingly enough, none of these images actually come from the Bible. None of them. We are given no physical description of what the Bible looks like other than like a snake at the Garden of Eden, or the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the, of the Bible. Most of our depictions and, and illustrations that we get come from descriptions that happen in uh, secular literature like Dante's Inferno and Paradise Lost, or out of our own imagination of what pure evil would look like. But none of them are actually based on any biblical account. And at every age and every generation and every phase of our history, we conjure up our own image of what this figure looks like. Now, as well meaning as these artists might be, the problem with these images is that it makes the idea of the devil turn out to be just a fantasiful character, like something that is just like in a fairy tale. It's hard to believe. We've never seen anything like that, so, so it doesn't make it really real. Instead of us thinking of the devil as a real and personable, a personal force, we actually reduce the devil to a cartoon character, and we settle for the idea that evil is just an is- issue of individual choice, social systems, psychological problems, and a lack of education. Now, if we took a vote in this room right now, and we said, like, okay, raise your hand if you think the devil is an actual real person, force a real and personal um, evil force and if you're like no it's just kind of like there's evil kind of around it's not real it's not personal it's just we make bad choices if we were to vote on whether you thought it was just individual choices and bad systems or like no there is a personal and real evil we'd split the room chances are even here 50 percent of you would say real personal force, and 50% of you would say, no, it's just kind of like this floating thing, and we make bad choices. That's what evil is. We'd split the room. We'd, if we took a vote, who likes cilantro and who doesn't? We'd split the room just the same, okay? So this is a hard concept. This is hard to get. Now, maybe you're on the side of the room that has a hard time believing in this whole devil thing, And if you don't believe in God, or more so if you believe that God is just kind of like a good force that the universe has surrounding it, then it is really hard to believe that there is a real and personal devil that is at work. But if you believe that there is a spiritual, real, personal God that is good, then it becomes a little bit easier to believe that there is a real, personal, supernatural devil that is evil. Now, in the biblical view of evil, in the biblical view, evil is complex and it's comprehensive. It's this force that is enormously powerful incredibly complex. It's more than just a set of bad choices that people make. It's more than just bad social systems. It's more than just psychological problems or lack of education. The force of evil out there magnifies and complicates and bad things that are happening. Christianity says that there's more evil out there than you can account in the world than just adding up all of the accumulative effects of wrong or individual choices. And the Bible would say that you can attribute that evil to actual demonic forces, that the devil, the demonic force is the devil and those who follow it. Now, the second mistake that we often make is that we give the devil too much time or not enough time. Either we obsess over the devil and we talk about the devil all the time, and the devil's there and the devil's there, and do you see that devil? That's demonic and all those things. We talk about the devil more than Jesus, or we're completely naive to the devil. We're constantly surprised or disillusioned. Wait, oh my gosh, there's bad things. There's a battle coming. In Luke's account of Jesus' temptation, it simply ends this way. He says when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. Until an opportune time. The enemy will always look for an opportune time. So don't be surprised by that. But the third mistake that we make when we're talking about demonic forces is we somehow think in our mind that demonic forces and powers are somehow equal to God's power. That God and the devil are waging this dualistic war and we're not sure who's going to win because they're pretty much on equal playing field. But this isn't true. The devil is a fallen creature who is followed by lots of fallen creatures. And God is the creator of all the creatures. He is infinitely more powerful. And in the end, not only can God overcome all of them, but he certainly will. That is the electrifying promise of the Bible that blows through every page. We know that God is all-powerful, and we know that the victory is. Is his. But when we're in the middle of this battle in the here and now with this enemy, it's important to be aware of where the attack is happening so that we can be on guard, so we can pay attention, so we can put all of our forces to the front lines. And so when he attempts Jesus, Jesus, he does it three times. He says this. The tempter came to him and said, you're the son of God, so tell these stones to become bread. Then the devil took him on the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And again, the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. This is the temptation. But do you see what Satan is doing? He's attacking Jesus's identity. Over and over again, he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, If if you are the Son of God, do that. If you are the Son of God, do this. Turn stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple and make him prove it. Jesus has been reminded in the last interaction, in the baptism of who he is, that his heavenly Father loves him, that he's his child, and that he's pleased with him. And now Satan is attacking his identity. He says, well, if that's true, if what you heard was just true, then prove it by turning these rocks into bread. Then prove it by throwing yourself off of the temple. And he tempts Jesus to try to get him to do something to prove what Jesus already knows is true, that he's loved, that he's God's child, that God is well-pleased with him. And the enemy does the same with us. The enemy is always attacking our identity. He says, if you're a child of God, then these things wouldn't be happening to you. If you're a child of God, you wouldn't be making these mistakes. If if you're a child of God, then you obviously wouldn't have done that. If you're a child of God, you wouldn't be suffering. You, You wouldn't be so disappointed. You wouldn't be such a disappointment. You wouldn't be going through the stuff you're going through. Can you honestly tell me? that he loves you and is pleased with you, look at your life. The temptation is not the circumstances that we're in. It's what the enemy is telling us about the circumstances. The temptation is to doubt the truth that we have been told. The temptation is to think that somehow we deserve better because our performance has been so good and that makes us angry at God. Or the temptation is to think that we don't deserve what we have Because we've messed up, which makes us mad at ourselves. The devil's main military, army, like army, navy, military, thank you. I was stuck on that first syllable. The devil's main military goal is for us to lose certainty about our position with god about our acceptance and our unconditional love that the father has for us if he can do that he can keep us from believing that we're really loved and that we're really accepted he, he will have us slide down into a posture of believing we have to prove our worth and our value and our acceptance which just just freaks us out and then we have to grovel and then we just try to prove ourselves based on our moral performance our goodness and our efforts if you think about your life and your heart as an engine, maybe, maybe a car engine, and you run on a particular fuel, and you have to have the right fuel in order to keep that engine healthy and going and efficient, you want to choose that fuel. But there's another fuel that we can run on. It's this fuel that actually corrodes our engine. It, it pollutes our and destroys our engine. It's this dirty fuel. And the dirty fuel is fear, and it's this need to prove ourselves. It's the need to be needed by somebody else. It's the need to express yourself fully without restraint. It's the need to be in control of everything. There are many, many fuels that motivate us to live our life. But there's only one fuel that is clean and can actually keep our engine going. There's only one fuel that will keep us from being disappointed and becoming weary, and that's God's love for us. Any other fuel will actually become demonic. It will be taken over by the enemy. It will be manipulated and corrupted until we start to break apart. And and whenever you're running your life on those fuels, Satan has you right where he wants you. The one thing he doesn't want you to run on and he doesn't want you to believe are the words that God says that you are his beloved child. And that he loves you and that he's pleased with you. Because that will become a fuel for your life and your heart. So when these voices come, when these real and personal and evil enemy speaks to you, speaks these lies, do you know where to go? Well, when Jesus responds to this temptation, often what he says is, It's written. It's written. Satan tempts Jesus to turn the stones into bread, and Jesus answers, it's written. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that that comes from the mouth of God. Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself off the temple to be rescued by angels, and Jesus responds, it is written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan tempts Jesus to worship him so that they can have all of the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Each time Jesus is tempted, he responds by saying, it's written, it's written. No, 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 it's written. Jesus is quoting scripture. He has marinated himself in God's word for so long. That he knows what are lies, and he also knows the truth. He leans into what has already been written. He leans into what he already knows to be truth. He leans into God's word, and the devil can't stand against it. He leans into what God says. You would need... The word of God to be firmly planted in your hearts and in your minds so that when this voice from hell comes and says all sorts of destructive things, you can say, you can say, go to hell, Satan. Get away from me. I know the truth. The devil and his voice cannot define who you are. You are defined first and foremost by God in whose image that you have been created and Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. Don't ever doubt that. The voice will try to devalue you. It will try to shame you. It will try to degrade you and your worth and your value. It's evil. Do not listen to it. It will destroy you if you listen to it. I know that there are so many people in our community who are just going through such difficult circumstances. And the voice will come in the middle of that and they will sell you lies. And they will tell you that all of the love of God is just a farce. It will tell you that it's all just an illusion. And you know what you need to do in that moment. You need to tell them to go away. You need to tell them to leave because they have been defeated. That Jesus has done away with them and they have no right to speak into your life. Do you believe that? Because sometimes I find it hard to believe. But this is how we survive. (laughs) This is like Discipleship 101. This is Survival 101. This is it right here because there are forces at work against us. And the only way to conquer them is to cling to the truth of our identity that we have in Christ And we have hope. We have a great hope. In the same way that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and never abandoned him and never let him. The Spirit leads us and never abandons us and never leaves us. He will never leave us to fight our battles alone. He stands right with us, right beside us, saying, No, here's the truth. Here's the truth. You are loved. You are my child, and with you I am well pleased. This story is good news. This story is the truth that there is one human that already faced this battle and passed the test with flying colors. He won. He was tempted to doubt God's love, and he won. He walked securely in God's love. Even as it led him to Jerusalem, even as it led him to a cross, he continued to hold fast onto God's love. Even when all of the circumstances around him said, no, 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 this love can't possibly be true any longer, but Jesus holds firm and he held fast. And when it seemed like Jesus's trust in God was all in vain, resurrection. Life, death is conquered for him and for all of us. See, even when physical, even physical death does not define God's love, because he has conquered even that. We don't live by bread alone. We live by the word of God that became human to us, to communicate God's love for us through Jesus. Now, what we're going to do as a congregation during this next song is we are actually going to retell where Jesus demonstrated his love for us in, the, in history when he gave his life for us through death and through resurrection so that we can all have life. And every step of that was motivated out of love for you and love for me. Let's pray together. Father God, we look to the left and we look to the right, and sometimes all of the circumstances that surround us don't feel like love. They feel like wilderness. They feel like desert. They feel like trial and difficulty. And yet we want to listen to the voice of truth that you say that you love us and that you are well-pleased with us, and that we are your child. And so, God, we desire to cling to that today. We desire to hold on fast to that, to believe that you are a good God, that you are a good Father. And so, Father, would you walk with us? Would your Spirit guide us? Will you just speak truth to us as the enemy attacks? We believe that... That even though the enemy be powerful, you are way powerful or more powerfulness. You are so powerful. We believe that you have already won the victory. And so we hold fast to that truth, trusting in you. And Father, we ask that you would not delay. We ask that we would not have to sit in these circumstances any longer than necessary, that that you would intervene, that you would intercept. But in the middle of all of that, even, even if it takes a long time, Father, we ask that you would give us the ability to hold on to truth, that we would cling to you and to your truth and your promises, that you are good and that you love all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together?